Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. we had a blessed week. Um, I'll be reading the Bible passage for today. Um, It's Judges 3, 12 to 30. So that's Judges 3, 12 to 30. So Judges 3, 12 to 30. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel, getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him. Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Uh, Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Jerah, the the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, leave us, and they all left. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with with his left hand, drew the sword from his right hand and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited for the point, till the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. Then there they saw their lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Shera. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hills of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the, of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At the time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Amen. Thank you very much for the long reading, and morning, everybody. Nice to see you again. 
um, especially um, for one or two people who are coming here for the first time. And if you've been here, maybe you come in uh, not that regularly. We're happy to see you again. We started um, the series in the book of Judges, and we're going to continue. It's a mini-series, so it's only we're doing it for about six um, uh, six uh, sermons, and we're really looking at some of the prominent judges in that book, and we're trying to do that within the context of wanting, in our, in our vision, it says that we want to catalyze a gospel-centered movement in this city that renews this city. So it's in the context of that, but in the book of Judges, the book of Judges shows us it's almost the antithesis of how that works. So we'll look at some of the lives of some of the judges and hopefully learn a few things from there. All right, today we are looking at the unexpected savior. Let me start with this. Quite often, in, uh, particularly in the United States, the, the, a question used to go like this, particularly about some monumental events. Where were you when, I think it really started with, where were you when JFK was shot? All right, where were you when JFK was shot? I'll tell you where all of you were. None of you had been born, except mommy's mommy here. No. All right. Or, after that, the more contemporary one was, where were you when the Twin Towers fell? I'm sure some of us can remember. I still can remember exactly where I was when I heard about it. Now, you know, that's America. It doesn't really connect with us here in Nigeria, right? So in Nigeria, maybe you would say something like, where were you when, I don't know, Muitala Mohammed was shot? Now, again, most of us here can't answer that. If your name is not Yemi or Shinubi, you know. But... Um, if we want to do one that is actually quite contemporary, I think the, the, the one that actually makes most sense and captivates the heart of most Nigerians is one of the most important events in our history is, we can ask, where were you when Kanun scored that fourth goal against Brazil? <laughs> now, some of you look at that and think, how can you say that is monumental? Uh, you know, what was what, there? It's a football match. No, it's not just a football match. Let me explain that to you, right? It was the match held in the night, if you are here in Nigeria, right? Because the Olympics was in US, right? So, you know, they're far behind. And, and, um, and so if you wanted to watch a match in the afternoon, it was going to be at night. So it was probably around 1 AM. Now, Brazil, universally known as the greatest footballing country in the world, had a personal mission, that Olympics. Why? Because they had won every single title that football, any significant, any significant title that football had had to offer, the only one that had eluded them all these years was what? The Olympics. And so they weren't, allow, they weren't going to allow this one to pass by. So they assembled a star-studded team, included names like Roberto Carlos, Juninho, or the World Cup winner, Bebeto. And then there were two others who would eventually become the best players in the world. One was called Rivaldo. And then the other one, a three-time world best player in the world, the phenom Ronaldo. Now, that was the team that Nigeria was going to face. In contrast, Nigeria had brought a ragtag combination of people, as we always do. But that wasn't even the worst part. This was the beginning of the administrative dysfunction that we had in our FA. You see, Nigeria just had a golden age between 1980, maybe 88 and 94, right? We had this wonderful group captain, Omerua, who was the chairman of the FA. Everything was working well, but now he was no longer there. Everything was falling apart. If I remember very well, our last warm-up game to the Olympics was here in Nigeria. We played Togo, and they beat us 3-1. 
That was the team that was going to face Brazil in the semifinal. Now, what was worse is that it's not like we didn't even know what to expect. Because in the group stages, we had played that Brazilian team and we had lost 1-0. We managed to get it to the, uh, to the semifinal. We knew everything was really, you know, it was so bad. And the match started and by the first half, it was 3-1. Really, if you are watching that match, by the time you got to the halftime, you are just thinking, God, just help us. Let us not be embarrassed. It's all about damage control. And then the match started in the second half, if I'm not mistaken. I think Ostinokocha even probably missed a penalty. But then in the 74th minute, 74th minute, somehow, fortuitously, Victor Ikpeba, who is a better player than he is an analyst, <laughs> Victor Ikpeba scored a Beautiful goal, well finished, you know, somewhere to, towards the right. We didn't expect that. And there was a glimmer of hope, maybe, you know. But again, it's mighty Brazil. And things kept on going, 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 and it was the 80th minute, 85th minute. And then it was now the 90th minute. Was there going to be any chance of anything? Austin Okocha had a throw in. He cleaned the ball with his shirt. He threw the ball into the penalty area. The thing was bundling about. And somehow, Kano Wankwa was with the goalie, and the goalie was behind him. He got to him, and he showed everyone that he has eyes at the back of his head. He did something like none of us could have expected. The keeper was coming behind him. He didn't look behind. He took the ball up and then kicked it in. 3-3. Three, three. And the whole place erupted. And that's when I woke up. <laughs> now, not for the younger people, not waking up like this didn't happen. It happened. Right? I woke up because I was recovering from malaria or typhoid. Or both of them. You know how it is in Nigeria. Once you have a temperature, it's malaria or typhoid. So I was, I, just I was recovering, I was a bit ill, and I was wondering what happened. And my sister came into the room, Femi, Femi, what, 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 Kano, Kano, 3-3, three, three, Brazil. Can you speak? What do you mean? 3-3? Three, three. I couldn't understand, so I came out, and I saw it was 3-3. Three, three. And so I decided to stay to now watch. Now, what you have to understand, for people that are not regular football watchers, if you are playing a knockout tournament where there has to be a winner, if after 90 minutes you don't have a winner, you go into what you call extra time. And that extra time is 30 minutes. And after that, you will then go into penalties if there's no winner. However, during this time, FIFA decided to try something very silly, which they've actually stopped doing. They called it the golden goal, which meant that anybody who scored in the extra time, once you scored in the extra time, the game was over. You can imagine the kind of tension. I remember at that time, two minutes into the thing, um, the, uh, the one guy, the Brazilian, whatever, uh, he, he took a shot that was going near the goal. You can imagine seeing everybody looking like, ee, 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 ee. and it just went slightly over. The golden goal was a horrible thing. It caused problems with the heart. <laughs> and then the game was going over. And then in the fourth minute, for some reason, a substitute had come. His name was Wilson Oruma. He was on the left. He played a stupid ball into the penalty area. The ball wasn't very good. Victor Equeba was going. He didn't even know where he was going. The ball hit him at the back. And there were three defenders in front of him. But when he hit him at his back, lo and behold, Kanu came there. And Kanu, who is a right-legged player, was about to shoot the ball with his right. And when he did that, he actually faked. Colloquially, that's called show me your number. <laughs> he did as though he was going to shoot the ball. But he didn't shoot the ball with his right leg. And three Brazilian defenders went this way. And then the ball was now with his left leg. And he was about to shoot it. You could see the goalie there. And as he was about to shoot it, all of Nigeria just went silent. You know when they say you have a near-death experience, you think about your life, everything we just look. 1914, Lord Lugard. 1960, Independence Day. 1996, Kanu. And as Raskimono said, all Nigeria, silence. 
Was he going to? And Kano shot the ball, the best shot he has ever taken with his leg, le left leg, and the thing went inside. And you know, you start celebrating like you don't even know, can I hug this person? Can I kiss this person? And all of that. Now, as Nigerians, that story resonates, not just because our football is now in the shambles, but it resonates because, really, it was our country. We are patrons. Uh, we, are, we are patriots. We love it when something good happens to our country. But actually, this same story resonated with a lot more people who are not Nigerians. Why? Because we all love the story of the underdog. Just like two years, uh, a year plus ago, the story of Leicester City winning the football, you know, it captivated, captivated people who didn't even watch football. Why? Because we like the unexpected. We like to see the David triumph over Goliath. Now, if we are going to see a spiritual, social, and cultural renewal in our city, you have to expect that God is going to bring about so many unexpected victories. God is going to have to use unexpected people to do unexpected things. The work is so much larger than what one man or one church or one group of people can do. When God's spirit often moves, he does it in very unexpected ways. And that is what this story of Ehud actually teaches us. And so I want us to look at this unexpected Savior sermon in three, uh, three under three headings. One, the left-handed man. Two, the left-handed people. And three, the left-handed Savior. The left-handed man, the left-handed people, and the left-handed Savior. Let's go back to the passage that Bimbo read for us. If you look at verse 12, it starts with this word, again. Can we see it? Again. Now, what do you mean by again? Well, this word introduces us to a theme of the book that will continue. It is this kind of decline. But there is a cycle. Certain things continue to repeat themselves. So when it says again, it's because it's contrasting what is going to happen between verses 12 to 30 with what happened in verses 7 to 11. Now, we didn't look at the first judge. That's the person called Ophniel. And his own story comes in verses 7 to 11. So, for instance, it says in verse 12 that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But if you just go, take your eyes up to verse 7. It says, they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. In verses 12b to 13, it says they then came under the rule of a foreign king. In this case, it was under the king of Moab, Eglon. In that other case, in verse, um, in verse 8, as we see, it says that they came under the hands of Kushan, Rishathaim, king of Aram. Then also, it says that they were under his, in verse, um, in verse, 14, verse 14, that they were under his rule for 18 years. Now, with, in the Othniel's time, they were under his rule for eight years. And you still see that in verse 8. This led to a cry of deliverance as we see in verse 15, which also had happened in verse 9. And God acquiesced by giving them a deliverer, as he said in verse 15, and also again, as you see in verse 9. So do you see the cycle? The people do evil. God judges them as a result of that evil. They are under the oppression of a foreign king. And then after a period of time, they cry out to God 
and then God gives them a deliverer. And that is the cycle that continues. Now, unlike Othniel, you can read a bit about Othniel, not just here, but we first meet Othniel in chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. He's from, um, he's, he gets married to the daughter of the younger brother of Caleb, all right? And that he was a, a member of the tribe of Judah. Othniel was the kind of warrior that would be, you know, the, he was prepared. He was the kind of person that you say, yes, this should be a warrior. He fitted the bill. And, you know, he did bring a very good victory for them. So Othniel is your ultimate kind of warrior. I didn't mean that in that, but anyway, he is the ultimate warrior in that sense. Okay. But here we are told that God gave them a deliverer. But who is this deliverer? This deliverer is a guy called Ehud. And the commentary of the writer finds it necessary to include the information that Ehud was what? A left-handed man. A left-handed man. Why would he put it there? Well, it's a very important detail. I don't know if you remember. I don't think people do it that often. But when I was growing up, I had a younger cousin. And he was left-handed, at least when he started. And his mother beat the living daylights out of him until he turned to his right. They were always discouraging him, always discouraging him. It was a social taboo for people to write with their left hand. Why? Because it seemed unconventional. Most people wrote with their right, with their right hand. So why would you then write with your left hand? And you see, the cultures around Israel that time also saw this as unconventional. And not just unconventional, it was seen as a bit of a handicap. Not just a taboo, but a bit of a handicap. If somebody is doing things with his left, obviously he's of no danger. Now, why can I say that? Because the Moabites couldn't see Ehud as some kind of person that was any threat. You see, after he'd given, he'd come, he'd given the king tribute with some other guys, he eventually went back and then said he wanted an audience with the king. In verses... Um, yeah, even verses 19. He said, you wanted an audience with the king. Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. And the king said to his attendants, leave us. And they all left. Now, you may think, oh, well, they were obeying the orders of the king. No, really, those people, the attendants were almost like the SS. You know, right now, President Trump, there are certain things he want to say or certain people he want to see. And he, would want, he may want to tell his security detail, sorry, can you leave? And they say, sorry, Mr. President, we cannot leave. Why? Because the office of the presidency is even bigger than the person. And at that point, not almost everyone is seen as a suspect. They could be carrying an injection, a little child could be. They don't just want to leave the president alone, maybe just with his wife, or if he really insists. But why is it that Eglon immediately says, leave us? And all of them just, okay, right, fine. Leave us. Why? Because he was a lefty. What can a lefty do? Now, some commentators argue, and there's no you know, um, consensus on this, but some would even say that the, Greek, the Hebrew translation really uh, literally means that he could not use his right hand, that he must have been somewhat handicapped, somewhat disabled in his right hand. Now, whether we take that or not, it's obvious that these people saw this guy not to be a kind of threat. And that was their indictment. You see, he was, how would you say, he was underestimated. He was underestimated, and in fact, most terribly, he was dismissed. Now, is this dismissal, this, uh, what can this man do, kind of, all right, we'll go. It's through this dismissal that they got what they deserved. 
Now, the story becomes a lot more racy and particular. It almost becomes like a 24 Jack Barr kind of thing, right? Before we've seen the big picture, and now all of a sudden it zooms in. You ever see all, some of those episodes where Jack, right, is getting towards the... How many people used to watch 24? All right. Okay, the younger kids can't, you know, all right, fine. 24 is this series where you actually had the ultimate superhero. Forget Batman, forget Superman, forget all those people. Jack Barr was the ultimate superhero. And towards the end of a particular episode, somehow Jack has gotten some of the bad guys and he's finished, but then he opens this cupboard. And then this cupboard has a bomb, like one minute left. And you see, you can see the distance. Jack can't run away, you know. And then as he turns around, he sees, like, people with, like, 20 guns facing him. And then you're thinking, like, yeah, what's going to happen? And then just, you know, it just ends, 24. And then, obviously, that's why you have to watch the next episode. You know, you can't move up. This is, this is how binge-watching started. But you start thinking, how is Jack going to get out of this place? And so your heart starts pulsating and your heart starts racing. And the question is, now that Ehud is with this man, how is he going to get out? Get out, why? Because he's going to kill the man. You see, we're given the detail that Ehud is a left-handed man. But we're also given the detail that Eglon was... A fat man. Why did you put that there? Well, they put it there because it was necessary. Now, this, if you don't have the sense of humor, you know, to laugh at many of this story partly is meant to make us laugh. Right? The children of Israel are reading this. They're under oppression in exile. So they're reading some of these stories of hundreds of years before. And they're thinking, basically, the writer is trying to humiliate their enemy and say, look at the king of their enemy. He's a very, 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 very fat man. And so the man gets up, and he says, I have a word of, from God for you. Eh, really, a word of God for you? Oh, yeah. All of the people will go out. And that says, okay, come. And then the man is trying to get up, get up, eventually comes. And then Ehud, who, Ehud, who has actually created a dagger, now sticks the dagger into the man's hand. This dagger is like 15 inches long. And he says that as he stuck the, the, the dagger into the man's belly, he was so fat that he covered the whole thing. And then he says that, his bowels, you know, how did he put it? NIV put it in a very polite way. How did he, let me say it again. He said, then, and his bowels, he plunged it into the right, uh, plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. You do know what that means, don't you? Okay, if you don't know what that means, let me explain. So he gets out. Now, when he gets out, right, at this point, his attendants don't think anything is happening again. But all of a sudden, they start smelling something, and it's a really bad smell. And you think, ah, oh, guys, at it again, oh. <laughs> now, if you don't believe me, look at, look, look. He said, after he had gone, the servants came out and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself. Do you think they were telepathic or they could see? No, they smelled something. But they didn't go and quickly say, let's, let's get it done. Why? Because it used to happen all the time. A guy used to eat too much, and many of that time, cause indigestion. But they waited. Now, they waited because normally they would wait. Oga takes a long time. Maybe he has a newspaper in front of him. You know, after you eat that much, it takes that long. But they waited and waited. They said, until they waited to the point of embarrassment. Aha. And at this point is when you're thinking, will Ehud escape? Ehud had just killed the, the king of their oppressors. Well, he says that he was able to get through the garden and he was able to escape. Now, this first point, really, what are we saying here? There's something that we must not miss. This guy was able to kill and the king in the midst of all of those people through one big mistake that the enemies had. They underestimated Ehud. And in our city, really, to a large extent, 
we underestimate people with limited abilities. When I mean limited abilities, I would say things like people who are physically impaired, things like people who are not fully psychologically built up. There is a sense of dismissiveness. In fact, there is a sense of trying to, you know, ah, no, 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 let's not give them too much. I remember one of us here one day, I was looking at the person taking care of um, a child with special needs. And at first, I was moved at the way she was not forcing. That's where I looked at it. Like, you're forcing this boy to do my job. Like, no, if I don't, he's, not, he's going to always keep being dependent. So try to train him and say, you can do more. He says, the Bible commands us first and says we should develop it as a matter of our heart to take care of the weak and vulnerable because they are created in God's image. Yes. But the Bible also calls us not to underestimate their abilities. I mean, think of people like Kobamza Sukwa, for instance. Thank God for what he's achieved. You look at that kind of person and you say, well, ah, if we saw him when he was 10 years old, just be like, yeah, just wish somebody would be able to take care of him. No, if, or you look at people who probably have no, their socioeconomic safety net isn't there. They're not very educated, their children, their parents don't have money, and we just think, you know what, it's good wherever you make it in life. You know, at least if you get a, a job that pays you this X amount, you should be happy you're getting more than your parents. We dismiss people and their abilities because we judge them, not by them being created in God's image, but by the things that they don't have. And as we see here, a society or a kingdom that did that were ultimately judged. They got what they deserved. So can I challenge us that we should look out for people who have little or no connections in this Lagos and invest in them. Look out for people who are physically impaired. They may surprise you. Invest in them. Where are they? Well, there are many of them that are in people's homes, but some of them are actually you know, unfortunately, because they've been abandoned, they are in societies, orphanages all around here. Look out for them. But also, not just invest in them, can you spend time with them? I mean, spend time, not in a pandering way, but in a compassionate way. It may surprise you some of the things that they would like to tell you. It may surprise you some of the things that they will show you. So that's the first point. The second point is the left-handed people. Let's get back to Israel. That was uh, Moab. Let's get back to Israel. We need to ask a question. Why were they in a state where they even needed a deliverer? Why were they in a state where they needed a deliverer? So they cried out to God and he gave them a deliverer. Why? Well, it's a twofold answer. And it's really, it had to do with their morals and their morale. It had to do with their morals and their morale. Let's take the morals. Now, in verse 12, remember, we are told once again that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and God's anger burnt against them, and that's why he gave them unto Moab. Now, think about it. It was God's judgment, yes, but can we say explicitly that it was totally their fault? Now, we looked at last week when we said the, the biggest theme of, the, of what the Israelites did as they moved into the promised land was that they were serving other idols. They didn't respect God as their own king, and so everyone did as they wanted. They followed the gods of the other nations that were there. But if we then go down and see how this idolatry then played in everyday life, I'll say the same thing that the Moabites did is the same thing that the Israelites did, in that they could never have seen Ehud to be a deliverer. You see... If you look through the Bible, you see the issue of right hand and left hand. Now, some, some take left hand 
to, uh, to the, 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 sometimes the left hand is neutral, right hand, left hand is neutral. Other times, the right hand is extremely positive, which makes also the left hand negative. So you take something like Ecclesiastes, verse 10, 2. It says, the heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. Now, the Bible is not saying then that that means everything done towards the left is bad. But, as I said, because when you read the scriptures, it, sometimes it's neutral, sometimes it's trying to be positive on certain things, and sometimes even the left hand is positive. Or you take, for instance, when Jacob was uh, going to bless um, J Joseph's children. And Manasseh was the first, and Ephraim was the second. And then he crossed his hand because he was going to give the blessing of the firstborn to Ephraim, but by using his right hand. So in their minds, for instance, now all these lefties, these lefties, they were dismissive. They couldn't see that their deliverance was going to come through someone that was a lefty, again, because of his condition. Because the lefty was going to be seen as someone that was weak. And if you were weak, it was the sin. Rather than help the weak and bear the burden of the weak, you marginalize them. You marginalize them. And as a society, aren't we guilty of such? See, it's not that you should not celebrate the strength and the talent of the gifted, of course. But should you, as a result of doing that, then have to, should the, should the weak be collateral damage? Now, three ways we often do this is through mockery, shame, and negligence. Mockery. And most times, children are the ones that are most susceptible to this. I remember to my absolute shame doing this kind of thing when I was young. In school, you know, the people who probably had a limp on their legs or the people who probably didn't, they still had developmental needs. We weren't really trained on how to deal with them. And what did we do? We looked at ourselves as being more complete than them, and we laughed at their own disabilities. Now, of course, but we grew up. You, don't, you shouldn't do that now. We've grown up. You shouldn't do that. But here's what we do. Sometimes we are ashamed, ashamed of them. Now, many of us know folks, probably you, who probably had children or siblings who actually had some of these developmental needs. They would actually not want to go out with those children. Or you won't want those people in your pictures. It was a way of silencing them. They have this weakness, they have this handicap, but we don't want people to see. Or even worse, or as a society, we are quite negligent of them. Having the privilege of staying in maybe a developed country, one of the things I used to wonder at first before, and later I now started to think about more deeply, is you go to a train station, and what do you find? We have staircases, and we also have Rams. What is that saying? It's saying that we as a society are thinking about the weak among us. But here, you get into places, you get into hotels, and you think, how is someone who is on a wheelchair going to get up into this place? Now you say, well, th that's not really my own you know, thing, but you don't even think about it, do you? As a society, this is Let's be frank, it's an indictment upon us. When we say, when, we, when Cobhams has made it, everybody's celebrating Cobhams now, but the Cobhams make it because of us or despite us. You see, when we talk about a gospel-centered movement, renewing our city, some of the things it does is, for instance, it will defy this narrative of progress that sees the prosperity of the strong and leaves behind the weak as collateral damage. You know, if we bring them in, if we employ them, these people are going to slow us down. Whereas you can be creative 
to be able to create employment in a way that actually meets their own strengths. Do we ever think about that? No, we have to think about the bottom line. We have to think about profit and loss. And I'm telling you, I know places where they think about profit and loss, and they continue, and they still have, place, they still have allocations to, to employ some of these kinds of people. It can be done. Someone once said that you can judge the quality of a society, not by strength, but by the way it takes care of its weakest people. If we want to see that in this city, the question I have to ask is we, City Church, can we be that? You see, you're not going to see the things that you want to see in the city if you don't first see it in the church. This is why, look at what Paul is trying to describe how the society of the church must then become the society of the world, or at least the world should look at the church and see how they should behave. The 1 Corinthians 12, 22. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for one another. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. That's why in our values, we say love people before we say love Lagos. Love God's people. Love the church. It must start with the church, and then it filters out to the world. Do good unto all men, especially those of the household of the faith, because we are creating an alternative society that we can show forth to the society outside and say, look at the manifold wisdom of God. How do we take care of the weak? These people marginalize the weak. And so they could not see that this person, if they were ever looking for a, a deliverer, obviously it had to be right-handed. How do we respond to that particular thing? Well, if we're ever going to see true renewal, and believe me, no renewal is ever going to come if you are not bathed in prayer, but the kind of prayer must come from a heart of repentance. And this heart of repentance must not be like this. God, look at the people, the horrible people in our society. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If you must see true renewal, you must see that our repentance must be both personal and corporate. I must not remove myself from the sins of the people. We see that kind of prayer both in Isaiah and in Nehemiah. Look at Isaiah 6, verse 5. Isaiah says this, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean clean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. When, Jeremiah, when Nehemiah was thinking about going back, Jerusalem was in ruins, he prayed to God first in Nehemiah 1. Look at verse 5 and 6. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive, to, and, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to, the, to hear the prayer of your servant. Your servant is praying before you, day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins, we Israelites. Huh? So you say, I confess the sins. You see these Israelites, all those people there. No, he says, including myself and my father's family that we have committed against you. We want to pray for renewal in the, church, in the churches. We say, Lord, you know, cause renewal in those churches because you know here in City Church we don't have any sin. You see, if you do that kind of thing, you're not ready for renewal. A 
in one way or the other, if we think that there's a mess going on there, it's because we too have contributed to it. And so repentance starts from home, and then we also take it collectively. If I can put a plug, our next series on, is actually all about prayer. And I hope that we will be really moved to it and also continue to be a people of prayer. Let me say the second thing very quickly. If the first one had to do with their morals, the second one had to do with morale. Now, we're told, remember, in the, that they were under oppression for how long? 18 years. Now, this is worse because with us, Neil's time was eight years. Now, all of a sudden, the wickedness, they've descended a, lo- a little bit more lower. And now, their oppression is 18 years. You know what that means? When you think about it, being under the rule of somebody else for 18 years. Well, first of all, they were drained. The result of this, they were drained economically. Because if they were ever producing anything, the agriculture that you could, should hope would help them as society, they were doing what? Giving tribute to Yeglon. That's what Ehud first went to do. He went to give tribute. There's the produce, but you know he's the king. We have to go and give him the money, almost like Godfatherism, right? You do something, you go and give it to the Godfather. So they were drained economically, but they were also drained psychologically, obviously, because now they are under oppression. The first one was their fault, but now the other ones, they've lost morale. They lost, they had become spiritually bankrupt. That's how they got into this place. That's the issue with their morals. But now they're economically and psychologically bankrupt. They have no savings. They have nothing. They've been under oppression for 18 years. The slavery was not only outside. It was now becoming part of their inside. And they couldn't see any deliverer anywhere. These people had become totally helpless. And in this bankrupt state, in which they are in, their, their problems were both internal and external, their only choice was to do what? To cry out for help as we see in verse 15. And so it takes me to the final point. The left-handed Savior. Now, the Lord obliged to their cry. Notice what it says in verse 15. It says, sorry, verse, yeah, verse 15. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave. Who gave? He, the Lord. And if we read in verse 28, Ehud himself says, For the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. Now, for all our love and, of, or, and the sentiments that we have for the um, underdog, you know, the unexpected savior, the thing there is that Ehud really didn't do anything if the Lord was not with him. It was the Lord that was working through Ehud. Because a morally helpless and a moral-less people always need total help to be saved. You can't do it yourself. They are totally depleted. If your enemy, however, is some human person or some organization menu, then maybe you are able, you are capably suited to take down your enemies. Right? Maybe, you know, the things are not going well in the office, or if we just tweak this here and tweak this here, you know, and then things start working. If it's a particular human person, you can destroy them in whatever way you choose. And at that point, you start to think that your own, your, you, you don't need God's salvation. You can be your own savior. Like someone we know that said he never needs, he's a Christian, but he doesn't pray for forgiveness. Forgiveness for weak people. I shall not name the name to keep the guilty protected. But if your situation 
is in your heart constant rebellion against God, even when you don't act it out with your will. And now you're in a cul-de-sac, you can't get out, and you know that you're under, under the ultimate judgment of God as the people, then guess what? You don't need yourself to be a savior. You can't help yourself. You need God to be your savior. Because anytime you give yourself to any other Lord, any other Lord, they would have the fate of Eglon in verse 25. It says, they came and they saw their Lord fallen. He was dead. All other Lords will fail you. So what did God do? He gave them Ehud, this unexpected savior. Now, Ehud, though he's a very good, he, the thing panned out well, he, and he saved them, you know, he saved them for eight, and they, they were land rested for 80 years, it says. Well, you know, 80 years expired. So Ehud himself could not be the ideal savior. Because even though 80 years is a long time, and it's longer than 18, people need rest for eternity. Because even after Ehud delivered them in verse 31, we are introduced to Shagma, a guy that they wrote one verse for. I don't know why. I feel sorry for the guy. Shagma, he too saved them, you know? So they fell into oppression again, and Shagma saved them. So for all of Ehud's whatever, they still needed Shagma. All right? But even after Shagma, other judges came. They couldn't find ultimate rest. And therefore, we, like other people, cry out to God. Israel were also under occupation centuries later, and they cried out to God, and God provided for them another left-handed savior to provide them ultimate rest. Now, when I say left-handed, this savior was left-handed metaphorically. Because if you read Isaiah 52, verses 2b to 3, it says, He had no beauty, no or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. You notice, just like Ehud, he was despised and what? Rejected. How could this be our Savior? You could never look at Jesus and say, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. A Savior who was despised and rejected. Could this be the Savior of the world? But you see, God always does things differently. Not only was he this savior that was unexpected and left-handed, his method of salvation was also left-handed. You see, Ehud that we meet here, we know that Ehud killed the enemy by doing what? By piercing him with the dagger and escaping. But with Jesus, he didn't pierce his enemy, but he was pierced. Why was he pierced? Isaiah 53 again. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we have been healed. See, that explains why he was on that cross. You see, for our low morale, our pain and suffering, in the, as we've been depleted, he was crushed. And for the sin, our, low, our terrible morals, he was pierced. You see, this left-handed Savior, Jesus, and his method of salvation has always confounded God's people. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached 
to save those who believed. Not only has it confounded God's people, it has also confounded his enemies. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But you see, what many of us, are, many people see as foolishness, because now we want a strong deliverer, a right-handed man. What we see as foolishness is wisdom. What we may see as weakness is true strength. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. How do we respond to this left-handed man? Well, you see, after Ehud had killed Eglon, in verse 28, he, verse 26, 27, he ran to his people. He blew a trumpet, and he said one thing. He said, follow me. Follow me. You see, the proof that the Israelites had accepted Ehud as their deliverer and leader is that in verse 28, it says, so they followed him. They followed him. In like manner, Jesus has stayed on the cross. He didn't escape because of you and I. He stayed. Oh no, there was a greater escape, but it wasn't really an escape. It was a conquering because he conquered death, the main enemy that we have. For whatever thing, deliverance you think you have, none of us has yet conquered death. But Jesus, going through the cross, came back from the dead. And Jesus says, if you truly believe in me, then do what? Follow me. It's not just saying, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. No. The proof that you have and truly believe in Jesus is that you follow him. You follow him in the things he calls you to do. You follow him in the life that he's called you to live. It means seeing that he was truly pierced. You were a sinner. He was truly pierced for you. But he loves you so much that he went there for you. You see, it is with such left-handed people that Jesus is pleased to work with. What I mean by left-handed is, do you acknowledge your left-handedness? That you need a savior because you can't save yourself. That you need a savior because you are under God's condemnation. It is only then this left-handed savior and salvation can be made powerful to you. But if you are that kind of person, shaped by the cross, empowered by the resurrection, even though you are no one, listen to what the word of God says. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standard. Not many of you influential. Not many of you of noble birth. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Notice. Somebody says that you are going to change the world because you're a world changer and there's a light inside you. It's nonsense. He said that he chose the despised things. But if Christ is in you, then he is the hope of glory. You see, this method of salvation and following Christ, it brings a kind of gospel humility that refuses to boast in anything you achieve. Why? Because you remember your left-handedness. He didn't choose me because I was great. But also, this gospel-centered way of thinking will stop you from thinking that no anyone is too morally or psychologically left-handed that God cannot save or use them. Why? Because God is saving and using you. Ehud teaches us this, this story. 
If we want to see a gospel renewal, it says this. It is left-handed people rooted in the left-handed message of a left-handed Savior that God will use to bring about a renewal in a left-handed city. Let us pray. Father, we thank you once again for your word towards us. We thank you for the healing that it brings. We thank you for the spirit-empowered inspiration it brings. But we also thank you for the challenges that it poses before us. We acknowledge our left-handedness, oh God, in that we can't, we are powerless. But we also acknowledge our left-handedness in that by ourselves, oh God, we will rebel against you. But we also acknowledge our left-handed Savior who died for us and is calling us. If we are here that have never really truly followed him, he's calling us, beckoning us to come. And if we are here and we've not been following him as we ought to, we pray that through your spirit, you will renew us through him. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.